Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 150, Enter the Nanjing Decade. Today marks a change in scenery as we move away from the Japanese Empire and turn our focus to the unenthusiastic target of its attentions, China. I, for one, have been looking forward to talking about China again. Out of all the mini-series I did from last season, I think the one I did for that country was my personal favorite. And since today is going to be some table setting and a crash course reintroduction of conditions there, if you want to get more intimately familiar with the period and are newer to this show, feel free to go back and listen to episodes 62 to 77 for a thorough accounting of events in China from late 1910 to mid-1928. Western accounts of the period badly neglect this part of history, despite how events affected hundreds of millions of people. I will admit that the neglect does have some slight justification. The era is a deeply confusing mishmash of ephemeral factions coming and going across a nation the size of a continent in its own right, with a population to match. But I think that's why I enjoy it so much. The massive stakes involved in the battles of the warlord era, and how quickly the powerful were overthrown. But if you're fearful that the confusion and suddenness of events that predominated last season will be repeated here, take heart. The cast of characters is largely going to remain the same through this story, although their fortunes will rise and fall. And by rise and fall, I mean mostly fall. You might want to still keep a map handy, though. There won't be any grand tours like the Northern Expedition, but events are still going to unfold over a gigantic geographic area. This miniseries is going to be covering the Nanjing Decade, a period that, strictly speaking, covers 1927 to 1937, so the start of the Northern Expedition to the initiation of the general war between China and Japan. But for our purposes, we'll be picking up in the summer of 1928, just as Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, or the KMT for short, achieved their great triumph and brought China under one flag. Strictly speaking, the warlord era came to a close with the Kuomintang's triumph in 1928. But if you remember back when we closed out the Northern Expedition, there were still a lot of loose threads remaining. Many of the biggest warlords, like Wu Peifu and Sun Chuanfeng, had been removed from the board permanently. But many others had managed to survive by making their accommodations with Chang and the KMT. They raised the Kuomintang flag over the territories they controlled, and acknowledge the new government as the legitimate one. Now, instead of several different cliques vying against each other, they were all coexisting together under one roof. And what prevented them from going at each other's throats was the presence of Chang and his National Revolutionary Army, or the NRA. Also, strictly speaking, all armies in China, including those under the remaining warlords, were all part of the NRA. But the portion of the army under Chang was far better trained and better equipped than everybody else. And this made Chang more powerful than any previous warlord had been. And indeed, he could expect to be able to engage any number of his more autonomous subordinates and expect to emerge victorious. This caused friction, as Chang hadn't really been appointed by anybody to lead the KMT. He had assumed command of the NRA, and from there built up a power base around himself by playing on the fears of the party's conservatives about the rising power of the left, and, in general, manipulating his rivals against each other. What I'm saying is that he effectively grabbed power, which, hey, all's fair in the power game, but his imperious and increasingly dictatorial rule rubbed the warlord contingent of the KMT the wrong way, 
and once the dust settled in the summer of 1928, would almost immediately contribute to tensions that would lead to a new round of civil war. But that's for the near future. For right now, I think we are due for a little refresher about China and where everything is in mid-1928 and where events could be expected to go. I should start off with the most powerful of the entities in China, the Kuomintang itself. The group was, and still is, a political party, and back in the 20s and 30s was geared towards modernizing and reforming China, as dictated by its recently deceased founder, Sun Yat-sen. Sun was the giant of the KMT, and was invoked by both Chang and his enemies to justify their decisions. He had been an unlucky revolutionary who died of cancer on the eve of his movement's greatest triumph, but before his passing had managed to fix the party's general ideology. The core was the three principles of the people, meaning, one, nationalism, which is to say that China would manage its complete territory without the foreign interference it had suffered under for almost a century at that point, two, democracy, which that should be fairly self-explanatory, and three, welfare, which was a focus on lifting the common people out of the poverty they had suffered under from time immemorial. His timetable was broken into three parts as well. There would be an initial military conquest of the nation to destroy the warlords, which was, on paper, accomplished with the Northern Expedition. Then there would be a transitory tutelage period, where governance wouldn't really be democratic, uh, Soon's idea was more technocratic, or maybe more accurately a meritocratic regime that would oversee the development of China, so that education could improve, and therefore the uneducated masses would develop the civic skills to properly participate in a modern state. And it wouldn't be just baseline education that would be improved on. There would also be instilled in people a sense of national identity and responsibility. Many Chinese didn't get to move around a lot, and their worlds were local in character. The tutelage period would make them active citizens. And then finally, a democratic era would be inaugurated, and China would have its liberal democracy. I'll be getting into how that sequence of events didn't work out later on. Soon also laid out how the structure of the government should be set up as well. There would be a five yuan system, with yuan basically meaning branch of government in this context. Three of the branches would consist of the executive, legislative, and judicial varieties we here in the United States know so well, which would mean that the president of the executive branch would function as a prime minister of sorts, overseeing the ministries and the government bureaucracy, which made it the most powerful of all the branches. The legislature would make laws and the judiciary would interpret them. The other two were the examination and control yuan. The examination branch existed to test the fitness of civil servants and represented a kind of carryover of the ancient examination system used by the Chinese dynastic empires. Except the modern standards would not be so extreme or soul-crushing. The control yuan was fun because it was the branch that monitored the rest of the branches to ensure they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Kind of a who-watches-the-watchmen-we-do style of group. Sounds like a good idea, but as we'll discuss, when the whole structure is rotten top to bottom, well, that kind of makes the idea redundant if it's, you know, just all flagrantly corrupt there. Then there was the KMT itself, a political party that very quickly would find itself without legal competition in China, thanks to Chiang formally making the country a one-party state in March 1931 which was the de facto reality already by 1928. Under Soon, it had grown in size, primarily because Soon didn't turn anybody away, and he represented the most public opposition to the warlord cliques, which predominate all across China. So, people flocked to his banner. By the time the KMT was in a position to strike north, 
it'd become something of a mess politically. Without even going into the alliance with the Communist Party of China, or the CPC, that was broken in 1927, the party had been split between left and right factions, which themselves quarreled amongst each other. The left had aligned with the communists, hoping to engineer a genuine revolution in China that would upset the status quo of powerful landholders, connected politicians, greedy businessmen, and ambitious generals. Their solutions would come from below, not above. Too bad for them, the conservatives of the party joined up with the NRA, and thanks to Chiang's success on the battlefield, the left was marginalized. I covered the split between the left KMT, which formed a government in Wuhan during 1927, which opposed Chiang's own right-wing faction based in Nanjing. What brought them down was that the left couldn't command the support of enough of the NRA, and eventually had to go back to Chiang and submit to his authority. There would still be a left wing in the party, but it was marginalized as Chiang's power only increased. The only real arrival from that quarter was Wang Jingwei, a longtime follower of Sun's who, for the longest time, had been seen as, as his political successor. The problem was that Chiang had the army, while Wang focused his superior talents on party business and politics. Having the army was more important, though. Still, Wang's talents couldn't be denied, and he was highly respected in the KMT, despite falling out with Chiang multiple times. His stature was such that party members would encourage his return, and the two rivals had a pattern of stitching together temporary truces between them. The party as a whole wasn't exactly important during the era, though. Sure, to get ahead in government, one really should have membership, but being on the central executive committee of the KMT didn't have the same level of power as its equivalents in other one-party states. The power was in the ministries now that they had finally been taken over for the entire nation. And while the party was allotted the responsibility of setting policy and goals, its dominance by Chang and his followers meant that the machinery of the party wasn't a critical part of the decision-making process. And I should now probably talk about Chiang Kai-shek himself. And yes, I did an entire biography episode on him last season, so this won't take too long. But I want to refresh just what kind of a leader he was and how he cemented his power base. He was, to put it bluntly, a conservative. He had a Confucian outlook on the world and valued traditional structures in society. He had proven himself to be an effective military commander and politician, and while he wasn't exactly one of history's greats, he was absolutely head and shoulders above everyone who had wound up under the KMT umbrella by 1928. His effectiveness as a leader was undermined, though, by his imperiousness and arrogance, something he recognized in himself and vowed to improve on, but was never able to. By his nature, he concentrated power around him, ensuring powerful positions went to men that he had personal relationships with, all very humdrum in Chinese politics at the time, but nobody had risen to the level of personal influence and power that Chang had. Even in the midst of the Northern Expedition, he had identified central China, specifically the provinces in the vicinity of Shanghai, as his main target, and the center of his power base became that in the Nanjing Decade. The reason why it's called the Nanjing Decade is because Chang elected to keep his capital in the traditional southern one of Nanjing, and not the northern one, Beijing. The reasons were several, with an obvious one being that Nanjing was well away from the Japanese strongholds on the Liaodong Peninsula and Korea. The KMT could also use that distance from the north to disassociate itself from the defunct government bureaucracy in Beijing, which in the last years of the warlord era had disintegrated and lost all legitimacy. 
a new government could be set up and composed of men beholden to the KMT. An even more important reason was that Nanjing was close to Shanghai, the industrial and financial hub of the entire country. Large sections of Shanghai might have been at foreign hands at the time, but the money that flowed into Cheng's coffers via the city put him in a vastly superior position to his rivals. It really was the key reason the nationalist regime held together, especially in those early days. The Shanghai businessmen were happy to support the KMT, as they were terrified of communist agitators organizing their workers against them. During the April 1927 purge of the communists, the business community shelled out 7 million yuan, the main currency of China, for the service. And the expected donations didn't end there. Up until the end of the Northern Expedition in mid-1928, businesses were shaken down for money to fuel the NRA war machine. Those who didn't cooperate were branded as communists and arrested. But even after the forced appropriations, Shanghai still represented 85% of the regular revenue that came from trade and manufacturing. So, whatever amounts they were shaken down for, valuable commerce still flowed. The nation's banks were also concentrated in Shanghai, something I'll break down more when we cover the national economy during the period. Cheng's rivals would come to despise his outsized access to money, with one KMT warlord noting that his subordinates were likely to defect over to the central government on account of being bribed. And with his new capital and adjacent piggy banks secured, Cheng could also finish up the work of binding the KMT party apparatus and the central government to himself. While he had never been seen as the likely successor to Sun Yat-sen, his opponents had done a great job of marginalizing themselves. His problem was that the traditional factions of the Kuomintang, both left and right, were composed of men who looked at Chang as a colleague, a contemporary, and at best, to a lot of them, even among the right, they saw him as an insufferable upstart. Chang needed men loyal to him to dominate the nationalist movement. To that end, he provided political patronage to three groups that would come to form net networks of influence on his behalf. The first and smallest was the political study clique. Don't let the name fool you as to its nature. These guys were the party major domos that surrounded Cheng and advised him on his decisions. Sometimes they'd have positions in the government or the army. Sometimes they were powerful just because Cheng listened to them. They themselves were not men who commanded followings. They were long-standing functionaries which gradually made them despised, as when Chang became increasingly the nation's dictator, they were seen as the corrupt advisors whispering bad advice into his ear. The next group was the CC clique. They were called that on account of being led by the Chen brothers, Chen Guofu and Chen Laifu, who had been personally elevated by Chang. Or it might have been because early members came from the Central Club, a social hangout spot for the well-connected. Either explanation works. If you remember the biography episode, when Cheng was a young, anonymous figure in the Kuomintang operating in the Shanghai underworld, he had a mentor named Chen, who he idolized before the man's life was violently cut short. These two Chens were that guy's nephews. It was a, your uncle took care of me, so I'm going to take care of you situation. The brothers were trusted implicitly, and they were loyal, although corrupt as all hell. But then again, so was everybody else. They were given control over organizational responsibilities in the KMT, which meant they had a big say in appointments. And if you remember the example of Stalin in episodes past, he who controls the appointments controls pretty much everything. Naturally, they formed their own patronage network, the CC Click. They wielded tremendous power, and most of the big players in the government were members of the Click, including the Kuomintang's own investigation bureau, 
which was split into a policing and intelligence-gathering unit. The third big group were the Blue Shirts, which came later in the 30s, or, depending on who you ask, never really existed at all. The very mention of a color-coded shirt organization should by this time set you on edge. After all, we've had the Black Shirts in Italy, the Brown Shirts in Germany, and the Green Shirts in both Hungary and Romania. Well, these guys were also fascist, or at least kind of fasci, uh, fascistic. They sprung from the army, being composed of those Wampoa Academy officers that were so loyal to Chiang. They didn't even really care about Soon's broad ideology or plans for a liberal government. They wanted Chiang to rule as a dictator. And Chiang himself would increasingly come to play with fascism as the 30s wore on. And by 1935, he was commenting that fascism was truly the cure to the disease that ailed China. Now, part of why these guys advocated for such an extreme solution was because the Blue Shirts only started appearing in early 1932, when it appeared that Soon's vision of political tutelage had failed and the Japanese were running rampant in Manchuria. They favored subsuming civil rights and mobilizing the nation around Chang in order to marshal the force necessary to combat the Japanese. Typical fascist rally-around-the-leader kind of stuff. These guys came from military backgrounds, so while some gained positions in the government, many more stayed in the NRA and preferred direct force to expand their influence. They looked on the CC clique and political study clique as corrupting forces which harmed the nation, which, to be fair, was entirely true, but were never able to bring themselves to blame their dear leader for enabling those corrupted groups in the first place. While the tension never spilled into the scale of assassinations that Japan suffered from, the Blue Shirts acted independently and oftentimes at cross-purposes with the civilian cliques. Now, the reason why I said earlier some might say it never really existed was because it was a secret society, so membership of the Blue Shirts was not a public thing, unlike other fascistic organizations where the entire point was public displays of force. Something I'll be covering in a future episode of this series was that in addition to being a secret society, the Blue Shirts were just the part closest to public activity, and in fact, there were other groups pulling its strings. It gets convoluted, but just remember for now that it was composed of military and party zealots who wanted to aggressively defend Chang at every level. A very notable leader among the Blue Shirts was a man named Dai Li, who organized and controlled the group's secret police. He's going to crop up a lot because he was one of Chang's right-hand men, a brutal one at that, who operated the shadows of China's underworld. And speaking of the underworld, that included the Green Gang of Shanghai and a host of other groups across the nation. While they obviously weren't given any official standing, Chang kept up links with them, and Dai used them as a de facto arm of the secret police. Now, just because Chang had control over the KMT and the central government, that didn't mean everything went his way automatically. One of the big challenges facing the Kuomintang was actually imposing a semblance of government in the vast provinces of China proper. Which, to refresh also from last season, when I say China proper, I mean the eastern half of the country, sans Manchuria. That might sound like a more modest prize, but it's where the vast majority of China's population lived and covered a geographic area comparable to at least a subcontinent in its own right. And like last season, that's where most of this narrative will be taking place in. Hopefully, I'll find a way to work in the Muslim Chinese Ma clique or the Xinjiang clique's intrigues with the Soviets. But they were in the distant, barren, and sparsely populated West, so it might be a bit before I do that. But even much closer to Nanjing, the KMT had its work cut out for it. The party was able to set up offices across the nation, and a semblance of government structures was set up. But out in the Kuomintang-allied warlord areas, 
these were very much placeholders for actual government. The leadership posts were held by the warlords, and their staffs were filled with their own men, just under the Kuomintang flag. A big overarching story of the Nanjing Decade was the gradual expansion of the Kuomintang's real influence. This was helped along due to two reasons. One was that the warlords would eventually rebel against Chang, and then lose against him, spoilers, never decisively enough for most of them to go away, but more and more provinces were bound more tightly to the central government. The second reason was the persistence of the communists, especially the South. The warlords were terribly ineffectual at dealing with them, so Cheng and the central NRA usually had to be called in when their activities got out of hand. The warlords took pains to not give Cheng a reason to move troops onto their turf, and the aftermath of the anti-communist campaigns showed why their fears were justified. The NRA troops would be closely followed by KMT officials who took up postings in the areas clear to communists, weakening warlord power and binding what had been far-flung regions closer to Nanjing. But as of 1928, there were four major factions that Chang had to remain mindful of. By far the most belligerent was, ironically, the Guangxi clique and its most prominent leaders, Li Zonggrin and Bai Zhongji. I say ironic because that clique was actually the warlord group that had worked with the KMT the longest, and its troops had been a vital contingent during the northern expedition. But they were also proud of their independence, and Li and Bai had grown to resent Chang and fear how powerful he was getting. With the bulk of the NRA fighting in the north and center of the country, they had managed to expand their influence out of Guangxi, and by mid-1928 commanded influence in Guizhou, Hunan, and even the southern part of Hubei provinces. Now, this is a warlord clique, so influence doesn't equate to control or loyalty exactly, but they were more powerful than they had ever been, and they wanted to keep it that way. The next warlord group was the Guomenjun, under the command of Feng Yuzheng. Even if you don't remember Feng specifically from last season, you should remember his backstabs. As a young officer, he betrayed Yuan Shikai when he was deployed to fight a rebellion in the country south, he rose to the highest echelons of the Zhili clique only to betray them at a critical juncture in their war with the Manchurian Feng Tian clique in their battles north of Beijing, and then broke his partnership with the Feng Tian in turn. His betrayals often stemmed from a chronic lack of money with which to pay his faction's troops. His power base was consistently Shanxi province and the central parts of what is today Inner Mongolia, which is to say some fairly undeveloped country. His continuous campaigning had managed to net him the much wealthier province of Anan, but only after years of fighting. He was an experienced commander, and his soldiers were marginally better than the average warlord troops, but he was vulnerable to Chang using his financial resources to bribe Guamanjun subcommanders. Feng was unique in that he was a warlord that had subscribed to the Nationalist mission early on and endorsed Sun Yat-sen as the nation's leader, the only reason they hadn't worked together was because Feng was in the north, while Sun had been in the south. With the northern expedition concluded, Feng willingly joined with the KMT, but saw himself as the elder commander, and a more fitting leader than Chang. Combined with his penchant for betrayal, I don't think I even need to hint to you how that relationship played out. The next warlord on deck is Yanji Shan, the leader of Shanji province. He's a unique warlord because he managed to secure control of his personal province, and he stuck to just that. He didn't join the big coalition cliques like the Anhui or the Zhili, and he didn't make plays for national-level control. He would make alliances during chaotic periods, but only to maintain control of his province. 
He had Shanji, and that was enough for him. He spent most of his time and effort trying to develop and improve the standards of living of his home province, out of both a smidge of concern for its inhabitants and also to better secure his own rule. Because his dreams were provincial, that meant the Shanji got a lot more hands-on government than practically any other region held by a warlord. For this, he was dubbed the Model Warlord, for actually caring about the well-being of his dominion. And he was defensive about his territory. He wouldn't let other factions pass their troops over, and unless he felt Shanji's security was at stake, remain neutral in nearly all the squabbles. That neutrality gave him more than a little credibility as a negotiator among warlords, and he occasionally acted as an intermediary. When it became clear that Chang and the Kuomintang were going to win the civil wars, he too joined with them and raised the KMT banner. However, he ensured that things wouldn't actually change in Shanji, he was still the final arbiter and jealously guarded his frontiers. Like the others, he quickly came to fear Chang's growing power in the country. The final group I'm going to talk about is the Fangtian clique and its leader, Zhang Zhulang. Zhang is a name you're already well familiar with from the last miniseries. He controlled the three provinces of Manchuria and took over the clique after his father, Zhang Zholin, was assassinated by the Japanese for dragging out the conflict in China against their wishes. Where the elder Zhang was a classic, hard-bitten, bandit warlord, the young marshal, as Zhang Zhulang was called, was a cosmopolitan playboy. He wore crisp uniforms, womanized, enjoyed the finer things, and he had a reputation for hitting the opiates really hard. Smoking them, injecting them, didn't really matter. He and his father had not seen eye to eye, as the young marshal had advocated abandoning the costly wars over North China and focusing on development in Manchuria instead. That was their resource-rich fortress, too distant from China proper to be feasibly attacked. The elder Zhang wanted conquests and plunder, though, and almost ordered his son's assassination in a fit of rage. Despite their rocky relationship, the younger Zhang was not too happy about his father's death, which was obviously at the hands of the Japanese. Zhang was always far more of a Chinese patriot than his father had been, and coupled with his growing fear of the Japanese, he readily joined with the KMT. In fact, he was the rare warlord who actually welcomed a respectable Kuomintang presence inside of his territories. The reason was because the men of the Fengtian clique were his father's men, and they didn't automatically transfer their allegiances over to the young marshal. Chang and the KMT wanted influence in Manchuria. Zhang wanted some outside guys to push back against some of his dad's old cronies. So, a working relationship was struck up. Given that Zhang had to tread lightly with both the Japanese and Soviets as well, an alliance with someone as powerful as Chang just made sense. As you already know, this wouldn't really work out for him, but for Chang, the alliance was a godsend, as the other three groups were obviously disloyal, and if Zhang really wanted to, he could have been the final piece that would have overwhelmed Chang. And since the breakdown in relations between Chang and the remaining warlords would get underway almost immediately after the Northern Expedition, that's a handy place to pick up next week, as I get the main narrative really going. And if you're wondering about the CPC, don't sweat it, they'll be getting their own special coverage on their misadventures in this miniseries as well. They're still there, lurking in the base camps in the mountains of the south and in the underground of the major cities. Next week, though, expect a bunch of bickering, backbiting, and one last warlord rumble that would decide the fate of China. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Music